the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. To put it simply, they split the baby in two. This after two entities fought over a multi-million dollar tourism marketing contract and filed protests to block the other from running away with the prize. Now after a six-month timeout, after finger-pointing and squabbling, the $65.5 million contract for marketing and managing tourism is cut in two. The Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, uh, has, which has been at the job for 25 years, gets $38 million to market North America. The Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, which cut its teeth managing federal contracts, including COVID relief funds, has been awarded $27 million. What CNHA delivers will be the test. This morning, we talked to CEO Kuhil Lewis and Tyler Iokepa Gomes. He's the point man for the tourism arm of the organization called Kilohana, which means best. We begin our conversation with Kuhil Lewis, who admits it has a lot to learn, but also has a lot to offer in bridging community and culture with commerce. First of all, I see this as more coolly on our responsibility that we have to take care of this place. We see so many of our families moving away from Hawaii in droves. You know, more than half the Hawaiian population is gone, too. And with them goes the fabric of Hawaii, you know, the culture of Hawaii. So taking tourism on is part of that much bigger role that I feel or responsibility that I feel we have to take care of Hawaii, provide meaningful opportunities where they can stay home. Uh, so it, it is, to me, uplifting a responsibility that I feel that we all have to, to Hawaii and its future. Kilohana is the name you've selected to represent what we are going to be doing in the future. And I look up the definition, and in the kapa world, it is that outer layer. So talk about the significance of that. You know, Hawaiians like to talk in metaphors. And so metaphorically, it represents layers of generational knowledge that has been passed down to where we have this beautiful outer, outer layer uh, known as the Kilohana. And so what this organizational entity within CNHA is going to represent is that generational knowledge that's been passed on so that we can do the best we can to ensure that Hawaii is the destination we all want it to be, but also that the values of Hawaii is is represented in that. And you have selected, Tyler, to man the helm. <laughs> so I don't know if you're the master uh, a kappa maker, but how, how does that work? How are you looking at this challenge? Um, I would definitely not call myself a master kappa maker, but I appreciate the compliment. You know, I think it. if we look at the past history of how these contracts have been handled, they certainly haven't missed a beat in marketing Hawaii as a place, as a product. Um, and they've done quite a good job, right? We've had steady numbers in the public's opinion, sometimes too many individuals coming. And so now this is the first time that stewardship of place is the sole focus of a contract. And so that looks like a couple of things, right? That's engaging our visitors to better educate, retrain, encourage them to partake and behave in ways that are respectful of place. But it also means uplifting local community, right? And I think if we listen to resident sentiment, that's an area in which our communities have felt particularly neglected. And so whether it's supporting our local businesses, nonprofit organizations, creating new products, new lemonade stands like Kuhio's done with Makeke, uh, all of those things add up to a certain level of economic self-sufficiency that I think builds more resiliency into our communities. How do you plan to roll this out? I mean, it, it's important because we have the Native Hawaiian perspective. You're the host culture. So how do you plan to build on what HTA started, like with the DMAPs, with the you know des destination area uh, management plans? Well, I mean, the entire contract wouldn't be possible without this partnership with HTA. So we're really, we're here to support them. And through that, we bring our unique lens as a classically Native Hawaiian organization. But there are other communities within this state that also need uplifting, technical assistance, the kind of support that we're bringing. And so I think the first steps really are expanding upon the work that CNHA has done for the last 20 years, particularly in the last five which is stewardship on a very local level. And now we are trying to amplify that message. And so really it's building on the work we've already done and providing HTA 
that expertise, that knowledge, and that access to community that we have always had and maintain, using that to help them achieve their goals, like the DMAPs, for example. And Kuhil, yeah, talk, talk yeah, no, about that. I just that. wanted to add, you know, uh, the, the problems that face Hawaii are not unique to Native Hawaiians. Everybody's feeling the pinch. Everybody's struggling, living day to day. The reality is I see this as an opportunity for Hawaiians to be seen as leaders and how we can uplift all of Hawaii. That's so important to me because we are the host culture. And I think we have an obligation and responsibility to support all that call Hawaii home. And so specifically with the the DMAPs, you know, how will you build on that? I don't know what you can say at this point because I know there's a time period you have to let lapse in case there's a protest out there. You know, with respect to DMAPs, I think it's a lot of, it's just coordination. It's a lot of coordination that needs to occur. So you've got to bring the various stakeholders to the table. You have to ensure that the grant program that HDA administers aligns to the DMAP goals. You have to make sure that the various entities within state divisions, you know, there's a new, there's a new administration. All are pointing in the same direction. Direction. And I think we're going to have a leading role in helping to facilitate that. And, and I think that's going to be the, the important part is how we collaborate, how we facilitate those discussions, who's at the table, and also working quickly. I think community wants to see some tangible outcome, and we hope we can deliver that. When I first interviewed uh, John DeFries when he took over HTA, we talked about, you know, being born and raised in Waikiki, you know, as a Native Hawaiian and the culture that he was raised in on that street, on that tiny street there. And he said he was being guided by his heart. Yet HTA had to really scrap this session, you know, had to fight for its life. Uh, and I think lawmakers maybe were frustrated in, in maybe the pace at which they were or were not managing tourism. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, Catherine, I think change is not easy. It doesn't come easy. And oftentimes it requires this type of disruption in order for something better to come out of it. So I look at this as we're heading in the right direction, actually. I think we needed this moment where everyone kind of got rattled so we can reshift, refocus, and now we can move forward together. And so specifically, I mean, what what is the plan for the next, I don't know, 90 days, 100 days? Beyond working with HGA to really nail down all the details, I think there are some immediate programs that you know, they have a preference get stood up. Some of that is supporting their grant programming, which has been highlighted in the past. They've also asked for in the RFP, they've asked for technical assistance. Um, and I think those are real timely opportunities to move quickly. Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement has done a good amount of technical assistance work in the past, and so have our partners. So I think we're primed to kick those kinds of things off that don't require a lot of uh, building from scratch. We can get those out the door rather quickly. There are also elements of the RFP that called for new programs, and so it'll take a little while to build, develop, and get those off the ground. But there's more than enough work to go around, and it's a two-and-a-half-year contract, so we've got a lot of uh, exciting projects ahead of us. You know, we've heard lots about the need for reservation systems at our parks. We have heard calls recently for a new model of governance by, you know, some of the economists in the community who say that, look, we need to bring these entities together, and we need someone to crack the whip. Unification of all of these different ideas is going to be critical to make sure that they are not only rolled out properly, but they are maintained and they're effective in what their goals are. And so you're absolutely right. We need to make sure that, for example, the, the reservation systems, that they're all done in a similar way, that they are all achieving the same goals. But it's more than that, right? At the very root of what the reservation system is attempting to address is hotspot management. It's attempting to deal with the fact that some of our local sites particularly those in local neighborhoods, cannot handle the the density of visitors that they're getting currently, right? And so this larger idea of managing hotspots around the state, that's going to require innovation, that's going to require forward thinking, it's going to require integration of a lot of new technology that not only allow us to create reservation systems, but take the data we gain from them, analyze it, and perhaps redistribute where our visitors are going. One, so they don't impact our communities, but two, so they also have an enjoyable experience and they're not one of 5,000 people on the same beach trying to get the same photo of the same turtle, right? We, we want to spread people out in a, a way that the community is agreeable with and in a way that makes their visit memorable and valuable. You know, Kuhil, recently in the news, you know, we saw there was one brought up on the west side who was 
uh, taking things into his own hands and trying to manage what he said was outsiders coming in and harassing the dolphins or the turtles. You know, recently in Waikiki with the monk seals coming up there at Kaimana, you know, I've seen just community groups go up there, you know, in their red shirts and, and, and they're kind of acting as additional police. I mean, we have NOAA, we have the volunteers, we have R. but how do you plan to manage those folks who, I don't know, might be going rogue? Yeah. You know, Catherine, Native Hawaiians have, for the most part, maybe it's not looked at it in this light, but we've helped protect uh, Hawaii and on all different fronts. You know, the Aina, it would be very different had we not had Native Hawaiians stopping development projects. But I think what we need to do is evolve as a, as a Native Hawaiian community. I think what's going on right now with respect to this RFP is a modern version of that, where we come together as a community, we put our minds together and we apply for these these grants and opportunities, these contracts to really look at how we advance our voice at a level and a policy level that matters. And so this is a modern version, I feel, of how we are going to evolve as a people, where we're involved. I've seen some really good work uh, by community groups, you know, in Waimanalo, the Limuhui. They're taking time out to educate people about the place and about the respect that they demand for people coming over to that area, you know, by the Turtle Pond, which is just in front of where supposedly Obama stays from time to time. You know, and they were worried about that becoming a magnet, but there is management out there and, you know, you can you can see it, you can feel it, you know, when you take part in things like that. So mm-hmm. to, to me, that was a, a bright spot, a positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Big Island, I've talked to vendors who, you know, they trying to educate the people that come in for tours, let's say at the the salt farm at Nelha. You know, so I think there is that kuleana that I think businesses are yeah. seeing that they need to step up and educate the tourists. I mean, yeah. w- what else can we look forward to? I think one of the unique things that we bring to the table is our ability to bridge the divide that's the, or uh, between community and industry and even government. You know, that industry hasn't necessarily worked closely with community because they don't know how. And community hasn't worked with industry because they just don't know how. So I think one of the unique opportunities we have here is to start to narrow that bridge, that that divide between the two groups. CNHA has been in the community. We've provided support services, opportunities for people to grow. We, We understand the unique values of Hawaii as well. So I think we can build the bridge between culture and and commerce and and I think that's going to be a unique attribute that we bring where we can start to address some of the concerns that we see coming out of community. That was Kohil Lewis and Tyler Iokepa Gomes from the uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement talking about how they plan to move forward with 27 million dollars for tourism management soon to be in hand. We have invited them back to talk story after their first 100 days. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater, presenting Taimane's Hawaiiki, a musical and theatrical odyssey featuring song, dance, costume, and spoken word, August 25th. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. Today on The Daily, the Supreme Court is trying to answer a question that has long bedeviled the world of art. When is borrowing from an earlier artist an act of inspiration? And when is it theft? We look at the case that could change how art is made. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. The county 
property councils across our state are knee-deep in talks about property taxes. They have until June to set the rates so they can balance their budgets. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden has been tracking the progress. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning, Catherine. And as you said, it's county budget season, which is the best time of year for me. <laughs> and the councils across the state are working to balance their county budgets and set their tax rates. And because property taxes are based on property assessments, taxes have automatically gone up throughout the years. So I think a couple counties, it's been around 20 percent raised some are like about 10 percent so county lawmakers have been looking at lowering county property tax rates or adjusting measurement scales jonathan helton is a policy researcher at the grassroot institute of hawaii he recently did a report on how local county laws could provide property tax relief and he did this report in the wake of the recent increase of property tax assessments honolulu is looking at the biggest i think reforms the, you know, they've, they've got the permitted interaction group and they're looking at a couple of bills that would provide homeowners relief. And then they're looking at, I think, more long-term stuff to create new tax categories for like long-term rentals, which is something that Maui does and that allows them to kind of segment out long-term rentals from like second homes. And it would have been a problem for with short-term rentals, but now um, for the next tax year, um, Honolulu has segmented out short-term rentals as well. So they'll have their own tax class. And, I mean, they're probably looking at the biggest stuff because they're looking at some long-term reforms. So a Honolulu City Council interaction group was looking at various real property tax bills. Earlier this month, there was one proposal by Merrick Blanchardi at proposing a one-time $300 tax credit. The City Council will be talking a little bit about a little bit more about that later today during its budget committee and helton says one of the issues comes down to how the tax rate classes were previously designed that the big problem for honolulu has been their residential a tax class which they created a couple of years ago and then set a tier so if, a, if the property is valued over a million dollars and does not have a home exemption it kind of gets automatically put in this residential A category, which, you know, you know, a couple of years ago, a million dollars was not a median home, but now it is. So now you have long-term rentals that are, um, have higher assessed values, so they get stuck in this higher tax class. And that's not really what you want. You know, if, if you want to have it segmented out, you would want kind of a tax class that's specifically for long-term rentals, you know, one for second homes. You can have a little bit more specificity in how you design your rates. So as Helton was saying on Oahu, since homes cost so much, what was previously a higher property tax bracket is now mute. And one fix or argument Helton makes is segmenting out property tax brackets. That's what they do on Maui. And on Maui, their county budget is looking to reduce real property tax rates on homes valued more than $3 million. Helton says Maui has one of the better property tax systems that could be applied elsewhere throughout the state. Maui just has the best probably because they, they do have everything segmented out. So if they want to give relief to homeowners or people who own commercial property or long-term rentals, right, they can adjust their tax class to do that. And there's not as much concern about, like, like I'll give you an example. On Kauai, they were considering um, a tax rate change for the ag tax class. And that was, that was ultimately scrapped this year because there was concern that, you know, we might have a lot of people who farm ag land but who don't own it. And so the benefits of the tax rate might not go to the people that they were kind of aiming it at. And the way Maui has it set up, although not as much for their ag class, they have it set up for their other classes, is where they can kind of target relief a little bit easier than the other counties can. And one of the other examples on Kauai, they're looking at cutting tax rates for homeowners in their residential and residential classes. Mayor Derek Kawakami wanted to do this because most of the incoming funds from real property taxes actually come from hotel and vacation rentals. So during his state of the state, he was talking about how, you know, there's outside sources that are bringing money in. So let's help relieve people who are here, who are living here. And they figured that... Um, the council would be hearing this proposal on Wednesday. And then what about the Big Island? On the Big Island, uh, they were looking at lowering ag rates, which would offer real property tax breaks to farmers. And that bill isn't up for discussion until June. 
And uh, I know, you know, we, we've heard lots about how we have the lowest uh, real property mm-hmm. uh, taxes, you know, I think in the country, but we also have like, you know, pretty high cost mm-hmm. of living as well. Of course. And one of the things that Jonathan Helton and I were talking about is how everything adds up. So when you look at the general excise tax, yeah, it, it looks low, but you're kind of getting it double with the state and the counties and everything really adds up. And what I'm hearing from the county councils as well as mayors is they want to provide this relief, looking at different ways that they can, you know, kind of adjust things. You know, we're really taking a lot of money in from these property taxes, where can we relieve people? So whether that's the one-time deal or permanently adjusting tax rates during this next fiscal year. Have they talked about uh, changing the rates, uh, increasing them for the hotels and resorts? I haven't seen that. That possibly is happening. I know on Kauai that they're not looking at doing that. They're really looking at just the homestead and residential because you know, there's so much money coming in from the hotels. Yeah, there's probably concern too about the economy. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. if whether the tourists will keep coming, keep coming back if you know we go into a national recession. But stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's Sabrina Bowden. Look for her stories on the HPR website. Beat brings us a snapshot of Mayor Rick Langerity's town hall meetings. Reporter Kristen Downey has been in the audience and joins us today for our reality check. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So you've been attending a lot of these meetings. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, a pretty we've been busy. Pretty different flavor, I imagine, from one community to the next. Quite a bit. Um, the mayor is two years into his administration and he's running for re-election. He's 76 years old. He's not a career politician. And he's, you get the sense he's willing to put his neck, his, stick his neck out a bit in these town halls he's having. There's, they are unscripted events. He's had 10 of them so far. And the last of this series will be happening on Thursday night at Pearl Harbor Elementary School. We've been at 10. And they've been very interesting and very diverse. Eva, Waianae, Waipahu, Mililani, Aina Haina. Waiya, Kaneohe, Waialua, Waikiki. The last one was in Kali'i. And in each of these communities, people have brought up a completely different set of issues, actually often quite surprising. Well, where hasn't he gone? <laughs> I'm sorry? Where hasn't he gone? Has he been on, has he been on the windward <laughs> well, side? That's interest, an interesting question. Uh, so far, he has not made an appearance in Kailua or Waimanalo. Okay. But he, he does uh, an area where there's been a bit of controversy over Bill 19 and the plan to allow commercial uses on public beaches that have long sought and had uh, managed to get some special protections for themselves, but where Bill 19 would standardize beach access um, and bring new restrictions to other places, but take it away from Kailua and Waimanalo, that's one place that the mayor has not ventured to go. Okay, I imagine yeah, he would get an earful uh, from that community on that uh, on that particular issue. Uh, but yeah, so so talk about you know wh- what uh, some of these communities uh, feel is important um, of the ones that you've attended. Uh, in uh, Mililani, um, well, one of the things that's been really interesting is how often people have brought up recreational concerns, issues with parks. Uh, You know, we think that they'd be thinking about affordable housing or climate change, but really what people want is more pickleball courts, uh, and uh, they want repairs on basic recreational facilities. So in Mililani, for example, there was quite a discussion about the fact that they had an indoor roller skating rink that had been closed for several years that just needed some basic repairs, and that had been allowed to be shuttered for actually for the last few years. a group of residents from in the Mililani area showed up. They asked the mayor to get this fixed. And within five weeks, 
the repairs have been made and the arena has been reopened. So to people in Mililani, this is a huge success. Well, I, I imagine, yeah, that as you go around the island, you know, the concerns are a little different. Um, you know, uh, what about like on the, the west side? Uh, a lot of concerns about crime, concerns about homelessness. At every single event, he's heard about rising property assessments. Um, there's uh, the Macaquilo Road extension is very, uh, was a very hot issue at and Eva, um, it's a, a long-awaited road. Um, there's been proposals to build the extension, but the mayor's staff told the audience just pretty clearly that doing the extension presents a lot of engineering challenges and would cost at least $60 million, and explained that that's the reason they haven't been able to go forward with it. Um, so in some cases, the governor, the mayor, has uh, had to give people some bad news, um, but also has explained to them ways that it might be possible to go forward. I think one of the things that made these has made these town halls very interesting is that in addition to them being unscripted, in other words, anyone can stand up and ask any question they want, the mayor has brought his entire administration to the event, and there's 25 people lined up behind him at the town hall. They're either the directors of departments or the deputy directors, and when people come up with a question, the mayor parries it or discusses it a little bit, gets the gist of it, but then allows the official who's most responsible fix, for fixing that problem to address it. And that's been really interesting because then um, it's not the usual thing that we see in so many, for example, neighborhood board meetings where a question or a problem is raised and people say, oh, we'll go back and check on this, and then they may come back a month or two months later with an answer. No, the people in the audience can get an answer right there. Well, and that's something that seems to be quite popular. Uh, the mayor has said his goal here is to be uh, rebuilding trust in the community after a lot of scandals that we've had in the last few years. And participants, it seems to be a um, it seems to be uh, reaching a receptive audience with the uh, with the almost 2,000 people now who have attended. Well, it seems like yeah, if people are, are going to be paying uh, taxes, whether you know real property uh, or whatnot in fees. They want to make sure they get the services that they need for their community. So, yeah. It, That's it, exactly right. It's interesting. Well, we'll see what happens at the last meeting, uh, and um, we'll stay tuned for the next round. But thank, thank you, so, you much. so much. All righty. Thanks so much, Kristen. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing a variety of hands-on art experiences for children and adults. Learn more about classes, workshops, cakey art camps, and drop-in art making at honolulumuseum.org. Tonight at 8 p.m., the Hawaii Symphony lights up HPR 2's airwaves with guest conductor Dane Lamb and cellist Sterling Elliott performing Mahler's Blumina, Popper's Hungarian Rhapsody, Symphony Number no. 2 by Brahms, and much more. That's tonight on HPR 2, your home for classical music, right after evening concert. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. legislative session can often be a mixed bag for the many entities vying for funding. Earlier this year, we heard how some 60 nonprofits banded together to ask for an increase in grant funding to help with the rising cost of electricity and to help retain staff. Today, we hear from the West Hawaii Mediation Center. The nonprofit received a state grant for a new uh, restorative justice program, but 
it won't get funding renewed for its popular landlord-tenant mediation program. The center's executive director, Eric Paul, says he may have to cut staff. The conversations was also Subiano talk with Paul about the situation. A bill that the state legislature didn't pass, HB 1439, where landlord-tenant mediations were paired with rental relief. First, can you talk about how that bill's failure to pass impacts the people in the state and the county? So HB 1439, this House bill that would have reestablished the use of landlord-tenant mediation before a landlord could file a summary possession case in court. It was utilized kind of alongside rental relief funds, and in 2022, 2023, it was known as Act 57. Uh, It's gone through a couple of modifications for this new bill, and it essentially appropriated $1.25 million for mediation services and another $12 million for rental relief. And here's where it impacts us and local folks. Renter protection and assistance programs have now, after COVID, dried up. The challenge brought by Hawaii's unique housing shortage and high inflation means the problem is still there. So for nonprofits like us, we still attempt to address the need by providing landlord-tenant mediations that always exists, only having to try to do so without adequate funding. So we do this while experiencing a 20 to 25% increase in caseload year upon year. So we struggle to keep our program staffed and we struggle to pay a wage to existing employees that meets the high cost of living that this state has. For renters, of course, that means that now landlords can take their five days notice and then take them to court to evict them without kind of this kind of mediary in between. Now mediation can still be done right? Landlords can still call West Hawaii Mediation Center. Tenants can still call West Hawaii Mediation Center. But what we found is that that's not incentivized through a law or rental relief funds. Landlords are less likely to volunteer to go through the process. Yeah, because it sounds like it would cost them time and, and maybe some money. It sounds like there might not be the return on it that they're hoping for. Well, with the law in place, there definitely was return. Not only did we have an 87% agreement where and 86% of renters of of that 87% stay housed, but landlords were receiving their rent through the emergency rental assistance. So landlords were still being paid. Had the bill passed, it would have benefited a lot of different people, as well as kept a lot of these kinds of cases out of the court system as well, right? There was kind of a benefit spread all around. That is correct. And without this key source of funding for your mediation budget for this particular service, will you have to make cuts to your programs or staff, or will this put your organization in a position to get really creative with solutions? It puts us in a position to be really creative with solutions. Cutting personnel, cutting staff is the last thing that we want to do as an organization. When we learned that the landlord-tenant program would not be funded, we had to go back to our budget creation sheet and try to figure out, is there a way we can retain our current staff? And we learned that we are in about a $43,000 hole because of losing that funding. And when important bills like this to fund important programs like this, when they don't pass or if they kind of seem to be less of a priority for lawmakers, how does that make you feel? How does that make your organization feel? I think one of the hardest things, especially living in Hawaii, especially for nonprofits, is we give a lot of our time away, (laughs) and the time that we have seems to be devalued as far as employees. And so a big impact of not receiving funds like this is that as a director, it becomes much, much harder for me to even give a cost of living increase to the employees that we have, which makes it difficult to retain them in the long run. I can see, and I think a lot of people can probably imagine what kind of hardship that puts your organization into. And for your story, that's the bad news or the not so good news. But there is good news. Through a state grant and help from donors, your organization was able to build out a new restorative justice program in partnership with the Hawaii County Prosecutor's Office. Can you talk about that program? Yeah, we're really excited that this not only got funded, but now this will be an expanded program in Hawaii County. West Hawaii Mediation Center is entering into now with funding a formalized partnership with the Office of the Prosecuting Attorney with their restorative justice program. 
So restorative justice, just briefly, is a, a philosophy that emphasizes healing and accountability in order to repair harm and wrongdoing, to build community and strengthen relationships. It essentially asks the question, what does it look like to heal strained or broken relationships in the wake of harm and wrongdoing? And the program that we're doing, that harm, is working its way through the criminal legal system. So in instances of crime. So we're really excited to be able to use our mediation skills, our skills as an organization to create space for difficult but healthy conversations in order to move forward in a good way and in the wake of harm to make things right. I think when the majority of people, when they think about the justice system, they think about offenders going to jail or prison for their offenses. I've heard many restorative justice advocates argue that just throwing every criminal behind bars just makes them better criminals instead of finding an opportunity to make things right. And it sounds like this program wants to do more than just let people serve time behind bars. It sounds like the program is meant to bring healing and bring communities back together. Yes. <laughs> um, what I can speak to about that is restorative justice is a process that centers the needs of the one who experiences harm. In a program that's called Victim Offender Conferencing, it means that it centers the needs of the victim. And so what we do is we come alongside the victim and ask what needs were created because of the harm that you experienced. And we allow that question to kind of guide the process. Oftentimes when a person experiences harm or trauma, there are certain questions that come up. And, and the best person to answer those questions is not the state, it's the person who caused that harm, right? Why did this happen? Was I targeted? Um, what was going on emotionally for you that day? This is how it impacted me. And having a kind of space to be able to talk through that is actually what promotes healing. Having a person withdraw into a, a system that avoids those kinds of conversations in prison actually doesn't promote the type of healing that restorative justice promotes. How do you convince a victim to engage in restorative justice? I imagine when somebody's hurt, I imagine they're angry. I imagine they have some feelings of wanting justice and wanting for the offender to go through the same kind of pain that they're experiencing. How do you make it appealing to a victim to go through restorative justice? I wouldn't say we convince people who experienced harm to do anything that they wouldn't want to do. We listen to what they have to say, what they're experiencing, the feelings and the impacts, and then we provide them with various options. And then it's up to them because it's centered around what their needs are for us to be able to then ask the kinds of questions and listen to the kinds of stories that highlight what those needs actually are. If those needs are met through the criminal legal system, through the court system, then they can be directed in that way. If their needs are something that are expressed differently, then we give them the option of restorative justice. How does the community benefit from a restorative justice program like this as well? The restorative justice program at the Office of the Prosecuting Attorney in Hawaii County has been doing this now for a couple of years. And our partnership with them will actually allow us to kind of double the caseload that's available in Hawaii County. But we have some stats already that show its success. And so cases involved, about 60% were juvenile cases and 40% were adults. There were 100% of over 200 cases that were mediated were fulfilled in their restitution payments. It was over $30,000 that was collected went directly to those who experienced that harm, to the victims of that crime. And finally, and, and this is a big one for me, 99% of offenders who have completed the VOC process have not re-offended. The recidivism rate in Hawaii is 63%, but those who go through the restorative justice program, only 1% have recommitted a crime. I kind of want to just kind of zoom back out to the 30,000 foot level. And when we look at how a bill that didn't pass impacts your organization, and then some funding that your organization did get that has built out this restorative justice program, when you think about how there's a plus on one side and a minus on the other, how do you and how does your organization navigate through those kinds of ups and downs? I think my 
nonprofit, West Hawaii Mediation Center, is probably very similar to many other nonprofits that are doing good work to drive community health on our islands. And so one of the things that we have the pleasure of doing is being able to be close to stories of hope, of the kinds of mediations that when a couple comes in and haven't talked to each other in three months, are finally given a space in which the other can be heard and heard well. And then they walk out with an agreement in hand so that there are actual tangible changes. You know, mediation has an incredible impact on the way people live their lives in positive ways. Moms and dads are able to visit their children. Tenants now have homes to live in. Wages to workers are being able to be paid in full. Separated couples are able to move forward in a better way. Families can work together to decide how to care for their kapuna. These are all stories of hopefulness and why we do what we do. So when things don't go quite the way that we think they should financially, we draw back to those stories of hope. Thanks so much for your time, Eric. Really appreciate being able to talk to you, man. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. That was Eric Paul of the West Hawaii Mediation Center talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to the center services on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares more details on a recently discovered planet with HPR's Dave Lawrence. Is there enough there to sustain life, even something as simple as insects? Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the fascinating and massive universe around our tiny planet, and uh, also things we might be able to try and spot in the sky ourselves, and we are connecting, thankfully, again with astronomer Christopher Phillips, welcoming him back. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week's stargazers, look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will be visible till they set just before midnight. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. Apparently this week you've got more for us on that discovery about this world with a whole bunch of volcanoes and maybe even, I don't know, some kind of chance of life, maybe mosquitoes or something going on there. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't bet on mosquitoes. (laughs) But this world found by a team of Canadian astronomers using the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short, have discovered what is thought to be a highly volcanic exoplanet orbiting a star around 90 light years from the Earth, so pretty close. This planet is suspected to be around the same size as the Earth and may resemble a larger version of Jupiter's moon Io, which is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. And what's the scoop on no? Knowing there's volcanoes there. Well, as it orbits the star, other planets in the system pass close by and exert a gravitational tug, which we suspect causes widespread volcanic activity. This is similar to Jupiter's moon Io. As the tiny moon orbits the gas giant planet, the gravitational forces that are produced cause massive amounts of internal heat in the tiny moon, and this manifests as volcanic activity. So we suspect the same thing is happening on this exoplanet. And you're thinking no water, no uh, oceans, that sort of thing, or or you, you got something up your sleeve over? Well, there's very little chance at the moment. This planet orbits very close to its star. It's what we call tidally locked. That is to say that one side of the planet always faces the star, and so it's likely too hot for any liquid water to exist there. Ah, but you left that other side of the planet out of the picture. (laughs) I did indeed. This is where it gets really interesting. It's possible that it's cool enough on the dark side of the planet so that water can condense into clouds and perhaps even rain. Astronomers do suspect that this planet does have an atmosphere, but more observations are needed to confirm that. Don't mosquitoes uh, like rain? Do they? <laughs> I don't know. They like water. <laughs> they could be off to a good start up there, Chris. But uh, seriously, sounds like a job for the, the uh, James Webb Space Telescope to investigate, huh? It sure is. And of course, this team has wasted no time in applying for time on JWST with the hopes of answering this question and discovering more about this fascinating world. And we know we'll hear about it on Stargazer when they make any kind of discovery with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the new Honouliuli Middle School in East Kapolei, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. A recent survey by the Asian American Foundation of Washington, D.C. found that four out of five Asian Americans don't feel that they truly belong, and more than half of the respondents say they don't feel safe. So how does this match up with life in Hawaii? The conversation Stephanie Hahn explores this over the next couple of days. First up, we hear from Praj Wal, a project manager from India, whose first landing place in the U.S. was Charlotte, North Carolina. He now calls Hawaii home, and he and his wife will welcome their first child any day now. So when I was in Charlotte, uh, you know, it's a, now it's a big city, but it was a little small kind of city. And then when you, when you actually go out, out of Charlotte, you can actually see that, you know, people see you a little differently because you, you look different. Even if you actually ask for a vegetarian food, they will look differently. And like, why? Oh, like, what, what do you mean? That kind of thing. But like, if you're in a big city like Chicago, New York, there's no difference. Like, I felt really safe. But if it is like a smaller town, yeah, I felt a little, you know, a small gaze or like you know uh, something they will just not uh, show you and they will not be rude but uh, it, you just feel it it's very hard to explain if you know if you are an immigrant the area you are in like you know nobody looks like you so i think the physical appearance actually makes a little difference right uh, but in hawaii like you know it's a melting spot like and uh, People think that I'm Hawaiian and I, I look more <laughs> local, right? So, uh-huh. so it's a very different experience here. Like everyone is so welcoming. Even I get a lot of alohas and like when I'm on my moped, people think like like you know I'm actually a local. So uh, here it's uh, people are more welcoming because of my looks. I think you know they think that I'm from Hawaii. Like you know I'll get more sandwich. Uh, salad <laughs> or like in some way I'll get some more privileges right so I think uh, I get some that's the only thing which I have felt in Hawaii I, I love it here in Hawaii that's one of the reasons why I'm staying here because people think I'm local and I, I love it here so more aloha I would say that is how I would describe that you know everyone has been nice I look like a local which actually when you are going for surfing it helps, like people actually give you their waves, you know, and they will actually talk to you more and uh, it's more helpful and I'm able to connect I'm, with everyone. So it's not just local, but I can connect with anyone who is from mainland or a tourist. So that helps. But uh, but after COVID, I think things have things are a little different to other Asian communities, I would say. The main thing on the mainland is definitely, there's definitely, after COVID also, there were a lot of attacks on Asian community. And, you know, we are always aware of few of the prejudice which is there. You know, coming from outside, we can we can understand the perspective they, the other communities have. The only thing I would add is, like, the majority of people are nice, right, uh, on the mainland. And... There are few thing, few bad apples which are actually making this happen, but hopefully we can control them. From Hawaii perspective, I don't think there is any challenge because you know we have so many Asians, you have so many different kind of like mixing pots. So nobody will uh, treat you differently unless you are harming nature or you are doing something really not good. But I think Hawaii is really awesome in that perspective. But on the mainland. We definitely have those kind of experiences where, as, where there are some bad apples which are actually trying to segregate people. Immigration is one of the critical part of American society so that you know we can advance the society and have new ideas. So I think immigration actually brings a lot of new ideas, a lot of hardworking people in the country, but you know, some bad apples, they will always like not like the difference, they will like to preserve few of the things which they want they think that this is right and stuff like that and they will start going into violent areas and do you know not not treat people right but i think uh, in hawaii i have not felt it it has been a good experience till now and i hope that continues this has never been a place where there are a lot of indian people so tell me a little bit about what that means to you 
वी हैव अ स्मॉल कम्युनिटी नॉट एज बिग एज लाइक सैनोजे और न्यूयॉर्क और शिकागो बट इट इज ग्रोइंग हेयर यू नो दे इज अ बिग क्रिकेट लीग विच इज विच इज गोइंग ऑन पीपल डोंट नो अबाउट दैट बट किंग ही वॉज अ बिग क्रिकेट फैन एंड ही डोनेटेड दैट होल क्रिकेट फील्ड यू नो सो दैट द थिंग्स कैन कंटिन्यू देयर सो वी हैव अ लॉट ऑफ श्रीलंकन्स वी हैव अ लॉट ऑफ इंडियंस एंड देन डेफिनेटली फॉर क्रिकेट वी हैव वेस्ट इंडीज जमाइकानो एवरी वन इज देयर फ्रॉम ऑस्ट्रेलिया पीपल आर देयर सो वी हैव अ गुड साउथ एशियन एंड इंडियन कम्युनिटी इन हवाई और हॉनलुलू here versus the mainland what really is that difference i think the biggest difference is like people have to really respect nature here and if you don't do that like i respect it wholeheartedly but a lot of people like tourists if they they are not doing that then people get mad and they will give you some looks which i think is the right thing to do like you know you have to discipline the kids but uh, for me i am like purely like i want to make sure that if i am going to a place i am just leaving it the same as it was so you know making sure that i i am a nature guy i want to make sure that nothing is it's all balanced and not disturbed so that's the very big difference which i see from cultural aspect and the second part is people are nicer here if you are nice to them people are super nice in hawaii in mainland everyone's in in a rush to go somewhere or be some place but in hawaii that's one of the cultural things i think which is good you know it's more aloha how are you viewing this idea of having a child who is american yeah i'm really excited about that you know we are having a baby girl and we had baby shower kind of thing very recently indian god bharai thing which is which was attended by all my hawaii friends and everyone so it was such a wonderful experience and i'm so excited that she is being born in hawaii where i really like the weather and the community and all the people here are so nice so i'm excited about that absolutely and this happens to be asian american native hawaiian pacific islander heritage month and that was hpr stephanie han talking to praj wall who was sharing his perceptions about hawaii and a sense of belonging Well, that's it for now. We plan to be at an open house that the military is holding tonight to talk about the plan to defuel the Red Hill tanks. We will have the latest tomorrow. What do you think about the plan? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And reminder, you can find the Conversation podcast on the HPR website or on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs>